0: Putting aside the question of how engineers will partake in the revolutionary dismantling of capitalism, there exists the question of what engineers will do afterwards. This is obviously highly dependent on the specifics of the world that the revolution inherits and cannot reasonably be predicted here. Nonetheless, it is likely that the technical division of labor will dissolve itself. The separation of expertise from practice is only rational by the logic of capital. Given how hampering this division becomes when it becomes increasingly granular, the dissolution of capital would necessarily dissolve any incentive to divide technical expertise so severely. Automation, liberated from simply being a tool for capital, can be deployed to eliminate drudgery rather than to engender it in the manufacturing process. The destruction of many useless industries, from armaments production to health insurance, would mean severely less hands on dirty work. And the opening up of learning resources to anybody who desires access would surely kill the distinction between engineer and laborer. Those who do will have the freedom to think, and those who think will be empowered to do. This will improve the lives of engineers as much as everyone else's. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 114 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, not joined by Ed, but definitely with producer Jeremy as always. Ed is unfortunately uh, traveling to the heart of darkness to study the crypto, the crypto beast in its natural habitat of Puerto Rico. <laughs> so Ed is, Ed is in Puerto Rico on a reporting and filming trip uh, all week for his day job at Motherboard uh, right now. So he sends his regards, um, but I'm sure he will come back with some amazing stories and pieces to tell and write in the meantime. So, but until until then, we are very pleased to be joined by Nick Chavez, uh, who is a mechanical engineer working in R and D, but. For our purposes, wrote a really brilliant essay in Brooklyn Realm which I know many people in the TMK Discord have been talking about. In fact, I found this essay through people sharing it and discussing it in the TMK Discord. So shout out to our comrades over there. You can get access to that on Patreon, but those plugs come at the end. Uh, but I read, I read Nick's essay and I loved it. We all loved it and immediately wanted to talk to Nick about it. So thank you for coming on, Nick.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So your essay does a really, really great job of doing a number of things. Uh, it, it's looking at the kind of class position and labor processes of engineers and engineering, which is something that, you know, we on TMK really care about, you know, understanding, understanding capitalist production from the ground floor, from the ground floor, from the factory floor of workers. Your position and perspective, both as an engineer and your analysis of engineering within capitalism adds like a really necessary element to understanding just the capitalist system in general and how production works in it. Uh, and But one of the things that really also stood out to me Is you like at the near the beginning, and we'll we'll definitely get to this in our discussion, but near the beginning of the essay, you ask this question of essentially like what role, not only what role do engineers have in capitalism, but what role do engineers have in communism? And how do you kind of square the circle of being a, you know, radical leftist engineer within a capitalist system that your your whole Profession is created to do capitalism better and stronger.
1: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I I definitely will not pretend that it doesn't weigh on me a little every day. Some days more than others. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable as a result of my you know profession. Uh, but it's you know I'm I'm very regularly confronted with you know looking at the manufacturing line workers around me or something like that, or just looking at the macro scale societal effects of what I know that I'm working on or other people similar to me are working on and you know it's 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 not pretty i mean you know we live in a society but it's not a good one so <laughs> and yeah. i know that I'm, I'm a part of that
0: <laughs> yeah i mean we we are all a part of that for sure and you know yeah. we we come down hard on the engineers on tmk um, yeah, we for we a lot of the it. reasons that <laughs> for a lot of reasons that you lay out in the essay but before we get into your analysis i am really Interested to hear, and I think it will provide the um, our listeners a little a little bit of context about about you, right? So you right. are a mechanical engineer. You're actively working in R and D, you know, in a, in a uh, in, in in the industry itself. So I am interested to hear what what can you tell us a little bit about the kind of engineering work you do, but also how you came to leftism as an engineer. Yeah. Was this beforehand? Was it after? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Um, I don't know that the two are, you know, they probably are related because, you know, like dialectics or some shit, but like, uh, I don't know that they were immediately tied. Um, so about my, about me as an engineer, I, so I've, I graduated from university a couple of years ago and I've been, ever since I was in university, I've been working in manufacturing facilities of some kind or working, doing engineering design for various companies in a couple different industries. And so um, I've definitely I've been exposed to, you know, like hands on factory work, uh, I've done it myself. I've also like worked as a manufacturing engineer in like rationalizing those people's work, um, oftentimes like both in the same job sometimes. And then I've also done a lot of product design, um, not, nothing consumer facing, mostly like for just stuff for selling to other layers of industry. It's definitely I've been doing a lot of very technical work, but I, I've always been very faced with the Uh, manufacturing process itself. Like it's always, if I wasn't directly involved in it, it was always something that I had to conscientiously like think about a lot as part of my work and the consequences that what I'm doing has for the line, whether it's like the manufacturing line at the company I'm working at, like in the same building or, you know, like the various suppliers scattered around the planet that send us like a part that fits together with a part from somewhere from a made in a factory on the other side of the planet that we assemble together and then, send us some other corner of the planet to do some other thing there. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a combination of like immediacy, the immediacy of like my work and then looking at how that impacts everything around me, um, as to how I came to, to leftism and then, you know, Marxism and communism more specifically. Um, I think I'd always like, even since I was like a little kid, I always just thought like things in society are weird. Like, something's not right about all this. Like, I don't I, like, I could never really put my finger on it. Like, you know, I was a pretty like typical, like liberal Democrat. I live in the U S so like, you know, I, I grew up with Democrat affiliated parents and that was kind of like my filter for a lot of things growing up. Uh, but then, you know, a lot of those inconsistencies started getting pretty like obvious to me as I was getting a bit older um, I started reading Marx when I was in college and it had nothing. It's funny. Cause like, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, campus leftists on, on campus. And I didn't really like get into leftism through them, even though they were like, kind of, I was like friends with them, but I wasn't like friends with them because of their politics. I just happened to be friends with them. But like, as I started reading Marx a lot more, I was like starting to get vocabulary for things that I was already noticing were like weird about, you know, how society runs and why it does what it does and, you know, why do these people suffer and why is, why do these narratives like claim one thing that just like very clearly is not true, you know? And then uh, I, I mean, Marx was kind of the entry point, which I, I'm kind of lucky that I didn't get some other like weird crank entry point. I mean, not that Marx wasn't a crank, he kind of was, but like, you know, I can think of worse cranks to get you know into theory through. And uh, it wasn't long before I was starting to realize like, there's very much a connection between how Marx analyzes capitalism and like the work I do directly, like for a living. And that was kind of a thread that it took me a while to like really convince myself to pull at it. But I'm glad that I did because like for a while I was, you know, mostly just like educating myself on on communism as like a school of thought and like Marxism as a school of thought. And uh, I mean, I still do, but it was never something that I really connected on a deeper level to what I do until like recently. And I was um, I was talking to another uh, Marxist engineer uh, who's a software engineer and he recommended uh, Braverman's Labor and Monopoly Capital to me. And then reading that was kind of like the rabbit hole, like the parts of Marx that I really thought resonated with what I do every day at work, like that was kind of a a more concrete analysis of those, you know, aspects of Marx's capital that I really liked. And then from there, you know, I started reading like David Noble and like, you know, just kind of finding more and more things in that vein.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, we will definitely get into more of the, the Harry Braverman and David F. Noble kind of strain, um, which is very much present in your essay, just slightly yeah. below the surface,
1: like barely beneath the surface.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was reading through your essay, I definitely picked up on, you know, especially like, you know, Braverman. And for those who don't know, you know Harry uh, Braverman wrote this book um, in this that was published in the 70s called Labor and Monopoly Capitalism: The Degradation of Work in the 20th Century, and it lays out uh, from this kind of factory floor perspective the way in which the the organization of of, of the production process was really pushing towards de-skilling labor, taking away labor's ability to Control its work process to shape the work process, and then and then you know David F. Noble in his work, you know uh, America by Design, which is on the kind of origins of of engineering as a profession, um, and then later uh, in his book Forces of Production, all coming out around the same time in the seventies, uh, you know looking at how. The, the very design of technologies and specific technologies for uh, for the for the means of production um, were you know had these social choices embedded in them about taking away power from the workers and handing it to management and I, I think this I'll, I think this gets us to one of the things I wanted to talk about at the very beginning. And you lay it out really well. I'm just going to read a section, a a, a paragraph from the beginning of your essay where you say... Quote, "...subjecting engineering to Marxist analysis yields complex results. Most engineers are pro- proletarians. We perform labor in exchange for a wage, which we need in order to afford a comfortable life in the global capitalist system. Despite this, the origins of modern engineering lie just as much in Taylorist factory management as in the sweaty wage labor of the factory floor." In the social totality that is capitalism, we are simultaneously dominated by the imperatives of capital's abstract logic while also concretizing this abstract domination against masses of other workers. Then, And, and the, the we here is we as engineers, right? You're speaking. We as engineers, yes. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting, you get at two things here. One is the kind of like, capitalist origins and purpose of engineering as a profession, but then also this kind of weird class position of the engineer as at one hand, not being capital, you know, being part of the proletariat while also being by design a kind of right hand of capital, uh, a tool used by capital to enforce, as you put it, this, you know, concretize this abstract domination against other workers. So could you expand on that, those two points a little bit more, the capitalist purpose of engineering and the class position of engineers?
1: Sure. Um, I, I'll start by saying, so this essay that came out in the Brooklyn Rail is actually a significantly shortened version of a much longer piece I wrote, that, um, was too long for the Brooklyn rail and uh, currently is, is only sitting in my Google drive, not, not known to the world, uh, except for the few people that helped me proofread it. So, um, sounds, sounds like you got a book on your hands there and there. So th- well, it was, it was, there were some talks with a publisher about that and it, it ended up falling through. And so it's, it's too short to be a book, but too long to really be like a, like an essay to read in like a comfortable sitting. So I don't know what I'm going to do with it. maybe I'll just throw <laughs> it on a blog and then like call it a day. Uh, maybe I'll expand it. That's a discussion for later, but, um, I guess, I guess this kind of this duality of, you know, engineers being both like a structural, a structurally important part of capital and then also being, you know, objects of its domination. Um, I think it's really important to think of capital, uh, as a social totality. I, you know, it's, I'm sure anyone who knows me already is going to know that I'm going to start talking in like post terms here. Yeah, like it's it's important that we remember that capital is not necess- like it's comprised of human activity and it's like it's a totality of human activity, but it's like it's in what differentiates it from maybe prior systems of production is that like there's an abstract character to it that is self-perpetuating and spreads itself. This is important to remember because capitalism isn't just like some assholes at the top being like douchebags to the rest of us. It's, I mean, yes, that that is part of it. That's a, in fact, that's a colossal part of it. Like, yeah, (laughs) fuck those guys. But but, like, they're still chained to this system too. Like, and uh, you know, they're just chained to a position that's way better than the one that most of the rest of us are in. And so we have to look at like how capital operates as uh, like an abstract system, not just like a system of like interpersonal domination. And so when you keep that framework in mind of, you know, an abstract totality rather than like people just being dicks to each other, I think that kind of gets to the, that helps you look at stuff like engineering or really kind of like any labor. Like, for example, if you take American workers in the United States, just like any, any real worker, like specifically, let's look at like white workers. You know, we are the entire, like the United States, like the basis for which like, you know the the society we live in was based off like genocide and slavery. Like it's, it's, it's obviously not good. It's terrible. Like it's a completely fucked up system at the same time. You know, we're also being dominated as proletarians or in other ways that everyone has like a position of both like perpetuating domination in some way and being dominated in some way in the modern sense by capitalism specifically. That's kind of like the, the structuring logic of societal domination today. And, uh, engineers play the very like we're the technical like the very technical what what is the the technical vanguard doesn't it sounds it makes us sound more important than we actually are but maybe that's (laughs) correct we're the intellectual force that perpetuates the technical domination of the workforce as a whole and So we directly, you know, our, our wages are derived from profits secured by de-skilling and lowering the wages of other workers. That's kind of like how that works. You know, we, we, Frank, we just get paid more than, than more of the workers. But, you know, as I also touch on in my essay, we're also subject to that same level of de-skilling and, you know, that same process of rationalizing our labor. Now it's never going to be as extreme as it is for, you know, factory workers, for instance, but you know, we have a lot to gain from the eradication of commun or sorry, no, we the eradication of capitalism. Uh, we have a lot to gain from the establishment of communism. And that's something that, you know, doesn't just apply to only like the lowest strata of whoever's at the bottom of the totem pole here. It's everyone in this system can benefit, benefit from that. From that.
0: Yeah, I mean this. This gets at something that you talk about in, in the essay as well, and I, I saw this as almost like a a struggle session for engineers, right? <laughs> because you you pose this, you say, you know, uh, this poses a difficult question for communist engineers. Whose side are we on, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, and you and you mentioned this at the beginning where you were saying how you. And of started coming to leftism and coming to a, a Marxist analysis of all this. Part of that is, you know, understanding your own role in the production process and uh, thinking critically about it, right? But I, I think that uh, it, it seems that you know, on one hand, there, there's a lot to this kind of professional managerial class, the the the, the dreaded PMC that is kind of designed to make you not think about that, right? Not think about uh, the fact that your, you know, your, your higher wages or your power in the production process comes from um, taking, you know, taking away that power from people, from, from other workers below you on the, on, in the, in the pyramid, Uh, right? While at the same time, you know, having the kind of comfort, the creature comforts and conveniences of of that, you know, solidly upper middle class lifestyle. When when you start opening your eyes to it a little bit and start thinking critically about it, it raises all of these like contradictions that I think a lot, you know, I know that a lot of listeners to TMK um, are people like you that, you know, Maybe not mechanical engineers working in R and D, but certainly (laughs) other forms of engineers or technical, you know, tech workers um, working in you know technology companies, working in different uh, you know aspects of the kind of full stack development, Um, and you know, so they're kind of confronted with this this position as well. But I think that. I, I think there's also a reason why it's a, it's a minority group. It's a growing minority, I, I do think. And we see a lot of like higher profile people just thinking about like Meredith Whitaker, thinking about other people we've interviewed for, you know, like, uh, Wendy Liu and Jason Prado, you know, these kind of radical tech workers who are, uh, you know, in a sense, you know, realizing not just what they believe but what their position is within the system but that doesn't seem like it's something that comes natural it seems like there's something it seems like there's a lot of countervailing forces preventing people from even asking that question of whose
1: side are we on right I, I want to I actually go back for a sec to the whole PMC concept hmm. um, for that because so, that's so I the PMC concept is something that I've been seeing thrown around a lot and I'm I'm skeptical that engineers fit into the same kind of like category that a lot of people use when they describe the professional managerial class. Um, it's, it seems like kind of a, a hazy category, but from what I've seen, a lot of people, so when people talk about tech, a lot of people, they tend to think of like Silicon Valley type stuff, a lot of software, a lot of like consumer facing digital technology. I can't, sp- I can't speak to that too much just because it's not a world I, I, I tread in too much, but I think that like the, the kind of social power that engineers command is very different than what a lot of, um, than a lot of the professions that get painted with the PMC brush. I feel like engineers are actually like largely invisible, uh, in a lot of ways. Like you don't really think about, you know, the mechanical engineer, you know, look at the local like semiconductor lab, you know, as much as you think about, um, some weird eccentric Silicon Valley software engineer making 300 K and, you know, wrote some weird medium article about like, you know, powering s- solar panels with like frogs or some dumb shit. I don't know. And then like, <laughs> you know, and, and then, and then other, t- like the very like media facing kind of like end of tech is a very different realm of tech than um, like the, than what most engineers actually like work in. Uh and so to the extent that like engineers can be considered part of uh you know this this quote PMC, uh I don't I don't know that I have like an extremely good position on that, but I do think that it's it's a distinction worth noting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that is a distinction worth noting and one we can we should get into as well because I think I think you were right that the the work of engineers uh is Largely uh, an, an invisible labor, but a ubiquitous labor as well, right? Very, like we, yes, we see, we see the products of that of that labor all around us without knowing or being able to point to. Oh, that was something that was intentionally engineered. I think that you know something that the the tech sector has done very well and has these kind of bleed on effects like and they're thinking about like the you know the the silicon valley kind of ideology which you you know we can get into this later but you do draw a really interesting distinction between like raising this question are software engineers actually engineers um but yeah, I yeah that,
1: that can of worms <laughs> yeah
0: without busting open that can of worms quite yet uh there there is on one hand uh, the Silicon Valley ideology has, has had this kind of bleed on effect of on one hand, making a lot of things that are engineered appear as if they are not engineered, as if they are just yes. like these kind of natural things, like a, you know, these gifts from the gods and we're all just living in a cargo cult uh, and they fall down from the heavens. And we're like, Oh, cool. We, you know, we have this new process or this new technique or this new system. Um, while at the other hand, pointing to the things that are engineered and saying, these are engineered for social progress. These are engineered to make the world a better place. Um, but I, I think you raise an interesting uh, and important point here that the vast majority of engineering falls somewhere in between those two uh, like poles of it's natural or it's progress, right? Like most engineering work just happens in this invisible uh, larger layer um, in the middle. Could could you speak to that a
1: little bit? Yes, and, and actually, so I know I, I know I just completely dodged your question earlier when I like went on that tangent about the PMC but so i want to i want to like address that too here now i think the reason that a lot of people or so you're you're talking about this growing minority of you know uh technical workers engineers uh, software type people who are becoming in you know getting into socialist politics or getting disillusioned with capitalism i think a big part of that is because it's becoming less and less um the, the facade of you know progress and the facade of like what we do is good for society is like getting pretty plainly eroded You know, I think in the post-war era when the U.S. was the only industrial superpower left, you know, there was like this historically unique situation where there was like this just basically, at least from the eyes of the American bourgeoisie, like infinite growth potential for, you know, American industry and, you know, like an an infinite market to sell goods to, infinite pools of cheap labor, uh, you know, wages for engineers in the U.S. were, you know, you could you could afford, you could live very comfortably back then. You can still live comfortably now, but it's nowhere close to the standard of living you could expect back then. And, you know, back then you, you, you combine, you know, good old 1950s, like white picket fence, golden retriever, Americana, like, you know, ideology of, you know, what we do is like good for the world and we're the leaders of the world. You know, that's a very, that was a very effective brainwashing tool. And I think that it was kind of, you know, when you're bringing, you know, quote unquote progress in the form of like factories and stuff to, you know, the quote unquote, like backward savages of other countries and underdeveloped countries and all that, you know, of course, ignoring that they were historically underdeveloped because of us imperialism, like, you know, in the century before it or whatever, you know, it, it's easy to see why people would fall for that kind of like all American engineering mythos back then. But today, you know, that's just, it's like, it's just so obvious. That's such bullshit today. Like, a lot of the products we make are just plainly, obviously like unnecessary or like, you know, we'll, we'll manufacture something that, uh, it's intentionally designed to fail quickly. You got to replace it or, you know, at my work. So it, it's really rich on my orientation day. When I first started, they were like, make sure you recycle as much plastic waste around the office as you can, because we can't recycle any of our manufacturing line plastic waste, which of course, which is just mountains of the stuff, like just so much plastic waste getting made on the manufacturing line. And it's like a biohazard to recycle it. So you, you just got to put it in a landfill. And, uh, but then they're like, you know, do your part, like throw your plastic <laughs> water bottle in the fucking blue bin or whatever. And it's like, fuck you. No, like, <laughs> like, but then not only that, like, you know, I think I, I've met a lot of engineers. Maybe, maybe I live in a little bit of a bubble. Um, so I, I, happen to live in a huge defense contracting city. Um, and as a result, you kind of have this countervailing tendency of like a lot of engineers don't want to work in defense contracting because, you know, like, we don't want to build stuff that kills people like that's terrible. Like, I mean, my first real interview when I got out of uh, university was for uh, General Atomics for their uh, I had so I had signed up for their inertial fusion team um, position, they had a mechanical engineer position for that, which is making uh, fusion reactor stuff, which I thought was like super cool. And then uh, they didn't want me for that. But then they were interviewing me for their like killer drone department. And then they're, you know, they wanted me to go work for that. And I, I, I didn't, but a lot of people don't want to, you know, make weapons of destruction. Like, um, you know, I guess that's what all weapons are, but you know, we don't want to make stuff that furthers us imperialism or whatever, or like, and it's not even, it's not like some huge ideological commitment where everyone has like some well-defined politics. It's just, you know, like making weapons is icky. Like it mm-hmm. sucks. It's gross. And then like, you know, uh, like so many consumer goods are just plainly, obviously like unnecessary and a waste of time. It's I, I think I think ultimately the, the point I'm getting at here is that like, yeah, like that facade, it, it's like getting shattered. It's becoming more and more obvious, even to engineers, that like a lot of what, you know, how society works is bullshit. Um, even though our wages are very high compared to other workers, you know, like housing costs, especially like in areas where there's a lot of engineering, are getting like crazy expensive. Like, you know, even with like our inflated salaries, we still like, you know, it's it's still a question mark whether we can afford to buy buy the white picket fence and put our family there with a golden retriever and, you know, have the, have a barbecue every Sunday or whatever. the fact that that's like not as attainable as before, despite the fact that that's like what we were promised, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people are, are getting upset with that. And like, I think that like it's, 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 it's a very non-severe form of dispossession compared to like enclosure of the commons in England or, or, or something like that. But as comparatively mild as it is, like it's a form of dispossession that may serve to radicalize more engineers and scientists and other technical workers like that. Um, But that's, that's speculation on my part. I guess we'll see.
2: Well, you're talking about engineers finding themselves like more and more radicalized by like conditions and things that they're seeing. And you're also talking about having a basic human conscious, not wanting to develop like devices that kill maim or, you know, harm people, you know, maybe, maybe with things like housing prices and, seeing inequity in the world more and more uh engineers will also see that you know they can also play a part in changing things better for the people you know having com- something kind of like a crisis of conscience like i saw right after covid with people i know that worked in the medical field like the same thing like can i go on any longer working in an industry that just benefits off of human suffering even though they're you know in the healthcare industry, you're doing that to kind of heal people, but you're still extracting as much money as you possibly can from them in the process of doing it. Do you do you feel like that there's more people now that you have a professional connection with, job wise, that are feeling the same way you are?
1: Um, that's a really good question. Uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, I think because I'm working at probably the biggest company I've ever worked for in my career. I've mostly worked at smaller companies. Uh, no, um, and so. I think part of it is I'm getting like for the first time I'm working with a lot of other engineers my age, which is like something I've never done before at past jobs I've had. I was either like one of like the few engineers like and I'd be like the only junior engineer or like, you know, there was like everyone was like a middle aged parent or whatever. But now there's I'm working with a lot of um, engineers, and a lot of scientists who are my age. uh, And uh yeah and you know a lot of them i mean I, I wouldn't call them communists or whatever but I think they all like a lot of them really recognize like yeah capitalism's like really fucking stupid like you know we we have a running joke some of my uh the some of the colleagues I'm friendly with that like everything's a scam like you know we talk about like you know we've established money's a scam we've established that the company we work for is a very elaborate scam like we've there's a lot of things about you know society that are a scam and like we we've all collectively agreed that capitalism blows and which is you know not news to me it's I'm impressed with them for realizing that from, you know, their own lived experience and like looking around, because I'm very used to engineering being a very conservative field, like politically conservative. And a lot of my older like coworkers at other jobs, you know, they're a little older and, you know, I don't like to generalize too much, but, you know, older engineers maybe had it better before and tend to be more politically conservative. So it's a little bit of a breath of fresh air. I'm not under the illusion that like, you know, there's like this huge undercurrent of like socialist engineers ready to rise up and like, you know, seize the means or whatever. But it's a uh, there's a there's a current growing. I think there's it's and it's part of this kind of broader current in society, like, you know, realizing, hey, like shit's fucked up. We don't want it anymore, you know, and it's manifesting in all sorts of different ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, and we'll we'll definitely get to this that uh it. I think you lay out a really convincing argument that uh, it, it it will be necessary for <laughs> a, a, a radical vanguard of engineers to kind of come to that realization and then and, and be like, okay we, we do actually need to rise up and and play our part in seizing the means of production. 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 I want to get to this what I think you lay out, and I'm kind of seeing it as this like in, the invisible violence of capital. Yeah, there are a lot of engineers, you know, and we saw this in in the tech sector around like the you know in 2018 with the Project Maven um, walkout at Google, you know, with engineers being like, uh, well, with a lot of tech workers at Google, not just engineers, but but people, you know, from the bottom to you know not the top, but you know higher up in the ranks. Yeah, higher than you would think, being like, this is not what we signed up for. We didn't we don't want to make uh you know AI systems used for image recognition and drone strikes. You know, this is not the kind of thing that we signed up for. Um and and you know, that led to a lot of these superficial changes at Google around like AI print, you know, their AI ethics principles and stuff like that. Although, of course, you know, uh they waited for the heat to die down. And I just saw, you know, in the New York Times reporting that. Google is getting back into the, the bidding war over defense contracts to build, you know, cloud compute, you know, the, the successor of the Jedi project that, you know, for listeners, what we talked about with Kelsey Atherton in our two part 911, um, episode, you know, but, you know, the successor of the Jedi contract, right? This joint enterprise defense initiative, cloud computing, AI systems, right? And they're, they're getting around it with all this weasel wording of like, well, we have a principle in place now that says we won't explicitly make anything any technologies that contribute to weapon systems but you know if we make ai systems uh that aren't used that aren't made for that purpose but later down the line they get quote-unquote repurposed for weapon systems well you know we we, we did our part right we, we still lived up to our principles but that aside what you lay out and something that we've Talked about on TMK, but never really quite explicitly. Is what is this a lot of engineering work um, really focuses on optimizing systems for relative. Or absolute surplus value extraction, right? This kind of like, how do we either uh, you know, as you put it, capitalist automation is historically unique in its obsession with a generalized reduction in labor time per commodity produced. Labor time per unit is reduced by reducing the complexity of the task a worker performs during the manufacturing process. And then you go on to lay out how a lot of engineering work is really focused on increasing relative Relative surplus value extraction, in other words, getting more out of workers doing the same uh, the same length of work, the same labor time, right? Getting more out of workers, whereas like absolute surplus value, and this is a, a really important Marxian distinction. Absolute surplus value is about just making people work longer hours, right? Like, okay, yeah. we instead of working eight hours, if we make you work ten or twelve or sixteen hours a day. Then, by definition, we get more out of you for that for for that day of work. Um, but whereas relative surplus value is like, how can we come up with clever techniques and processes for somebody that works eight hours a day produces five widgets instead of one widget, right? And this and in, this involves a lot of you know a lot of the stuff we see and talk about. Uh, and TMk uh, around like automation around surveillance around control systems you know uber for example uh does both right it's like how do we make people work longer hours and then how do we also get more out of them for every hour that they work but that's but that's just a high profile or controversial example this is this is the bread and butter of capitalism and the bread yes. and butter of engineers to figure out what those processes are so to me this is this is, this is that invisible violence of engineering. It doesn't appear yes. to be violent. It doesn't appear to be harmful. It just imp- appears to be doing good engineering, quote unquote. Yes. But so, could you talk a little bit more about engineers' role in capital accumulation, in the profit, uh, in the process of profit and extraction?
1: Yes, absolutely. And so, I think you described it pretty well. Um, it as something that takes the appearance of something good um but it's nevertheless a very much a form of social violence is like ultimately what it is so um basically for so for anyone who's not familiar with kind of the typical marxist account of how uh the development of the you know productive forces happens is that like in uh, i guess let me back up a little so for Marx, and I mean, I guess me too. I agree with Marx on this one. You know, commodity production is the very core of capitalism. Like all, all productive activity comes, f- or all productive activity, like ultimately centers around commodity production. Not every worker is involved in commodity production, and in fact, like you know, uh, it increased like a, a very proportionally fewer and fewer workers work in like the direct commodity production process as things get more and more automated. That's that's a that's a whole another podcast worth of discussion. Um, I'm just going to point towards the Endnotes Journal, and then Jason Smith's book on that came out in on Field Notes, and then as well as Phil Neal's book that came out on uh, through Field Notes. So read those things.
0: And Jason, I'll I'll just say as well, Jason Smith had a really a, a, a few years ago had a really really good two part essay in Brooklyn Rail, the same magazine that published your essay on yes. uh, these processes of automation and looking at like the service economy and the like you know, and, and, and automation. So yeah, I'll, I'll def, I will, I will echo that and point readers or listeners to, to those two really, really good essays.
1: Yeah. So yeah, always, I'm, I'll always stand Jason Smith here. So yeah, but basically, yeah. Um, commodity production is like the core of capitalism. Commodity production is all subject to this process of rationalization. And in my essay, you know, I, we call it rationalization, but you know, it begs the question of like rational for who, like you know, it's a loaded word. Rational really just means like it's rational by the logic of capital accumulation, and the logic of capital accumulation is your your entire reason for exist or the entire like the core thing you want is capital turning itself into a bigger piece of capital, money making more money. Uh, yeah, M C M prime. So the whole point of engineers is to deploy science and technical knowledge towards you know turning turning M into a bigger piece of M, like money into more money. As, so if if it wasn't clear enough, engineers are ba- there's a there's a lot of diverse like forms of engineering, and uh, like very very diverse like not not just like in terms of subject matter but also like you know roles that they play in the commodity production process. And so um, most engineering is like you know either in manufacturing or like one or two steps removed from manufacturing. That's like that's where most engineers like work. I'm in my essay focuses specifically on like the one like manufacturing and process engineers directly in commodity production, and then like design engineers and stuff who are kind of like one step away from that. That's kind of what my essay focuses on. And these engineers, the whole point is to, you know, you, you make a commodity, uh, not just for the hell of it. You make a commodity because it has this abstract character of the fact that you can like sell it for money and to make money into more money. And so you want to make sure that you're able to sell each commodity for the maximum amount of money to get, you know, get your return on your, on your capital. And, uh, you know, if if you have everyone just like working in a big, huge, um, like workshop, just assembling things with simple hand tools, you're not going to get a lot of, you know, return on your money because you have to pay out the ass on like labor fees and, or like labor costs and everything like that if you're a capitalist. So, but if you make machines that make each worker extremely more effective, as, as Jason said, you get more and more return on your investment. And, but, you know, this becomes a bit of an arms race between capitalists who can deploy the most effective automation and uh, who can, you know, who can do it first to capitalize on the, you know, the the socially, the average social necessary labor time to get, you know, a commodity made and everything. And like, if, if you are like 10 times, if you're like twice as automated as your competitor and, uh, you know, you're selling things at the same price as them, you know, chances are you're going to be, you know, making money at a much more effective rate than they are. So this is this is all kind of how, like where engineers come into it. We have, we have to design the commodities such that like, you know, it, their character is one that allows them to be sold for money. And then not only do they have to be sellable for money, they have to be designed such that they are most amenable to the manufacturing process. And the manufacturing process is one that is being continually rationalized and further optimized to reduce human labor uh, per commodity created. And so, because, you know, the more you simplify a worker's work, uh, you know, you can pay them less. There's fewer errors that are made, um, you know, all sorts of things like that. They have less leverage when it comes to, like, you know, class struggle. If, you know, if, because if they're easily replaceable, then, you know, if they're, if, you know, if the factory workers are getting rowdy, you, you can just get new factory workers. Um, but, you know, if you have these, like, experts in place, like, um, you know, like the America's Machinist Union, American Machinist Union was very, you uh, very militant in its in its control over the workplace because they had a lot of expertise that just no one else had. a big so David F noble he argues in forces of production that the development of NC, which is numerical control uh, production machinery mo- mainly in mills and lathes was to basically break the power of the machinist union who were doing all of this work manually with their you know I mean they were using lathes and mills but ones that were controlled by hand and like sight and like little little analog gauges not you know, not like computer controlled. And so um, assuming that that's an accurate assertion, I have have some minor misgivings with the way he phrases it, but I think he's ultimately right. Um, If we take that dynamic and like apply it to the entirety of commodity production, which is by necessity, like it's going to be industrial, whether it's like heavy industry or light industry, it's industry of some kind. That's a pretty like common tendency. You're going to see that everywhere.
0: So David Noble is a historian of engineering and technology. I love his book, Forces of Production, but I love that example you just brought up as well, because it, you know, he uses that as a, as a really great case study in terms of looking at the, the social choices and social values that go into the design of these seemingly, you know, very technical, uh, engineering processes, right? It's like, well, of course we would go to numerically controlled, you know, machinery because it's, you know, it's computers and it's, it's more optimized. It's more rationalized. It's better. Um, but he lays out this really I- intricate history uh, of, of this process where it really was, as you put it, it was about, it wasn't about capital doing its, you know, profit imperative of, okay, well, we'll, we'll make more money doing it this way because actually they made less money doing it this way, but they gained more control over labor, right? It, they, yeah. they made a trade off between saying, you know, we would actually make more profit. If we kept doing it the way that we're doing it, or if we designed these technologies in a different way, where the machinist guild still had control over the process, still you know, operated the machinery, we would actually make more money doing it this way, but we would have less control over labor. Uh, we would have we would have less ability to manage labor. Um and, and so they made this choice to design these technologies in such a way to sacrifice some profit for a longer-term gain of power, a longer-term gain of control over labor processes. And I I like that in part because, you know, it is a beautiful case study of the the kind of politics of uh, these technologies and the social choices that go into it, but also as this case study of, like, the the purpose of engineering in capitalism—it really was about rationalizing the labor uh, system or the labor process. And in this regard, rationalizing meant taking, deskilling workers, taking power away from the guilds and unions, and handing that power to. The, manage, the management uh, of the factory, the owners of the factory, and by extension the the engineers um, uh, in, in the factory. So re- kind of removing power from the factory floor and moving it up to the factory office.
1: Yeah, I, I think that so I want to I want to As much as I love David Noble uh, and that book, especially, and his other book for uh, America by Design, which I'm actually currently like finishing, I'm I'm not quite done with it yet. But um, I kind of disagree with the way he portrays that whole power struggle. Um, I I think, I mean, you know, he knows the history of that particular technology better than I, I do, obviously. Like if he says that in that particular instance, it was more a matter of like, you know, interpersonal power domination Kind of struggle, rather than like the the abstract imperatives of capital. I I believe him for that specific instance, but he goes on later, um, like in the in those chapters, and as well as again in the conclusion, to state that the 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 impetus for you know the development of capitalism under technology is specifically one of you know like like bourgeois control in like a in like an immediate like interpersonal sense, rather than being kind of like a manifestation of this kind of abstract. You know, capitalist social totality, and I mean, I I see why he, he, you know, he says that, and I mean, it's not an unreasonable thing. I mean, it's it's a that's kind of like almost like an anarchist way of viewing the situation, but I don't think that. I I think he he takes that kind of like one instance and generalizes too hard with it, which is ironic because I'm kind of doing the opposite here. The macro scale, like you know, the entire notion of like control over the workplace, like. What's the imperative for that? It's not just because, like, again, the bosses are like dicks. I mean, they are, but like, it's they're not just like assholes who want control for no reason. It's because you know, like, like you said, they want their like long-term stability of returns, and in their eyes, whether they're correct or not, you know, they see it as through developing NC and then eventually CNC technology. But then also, like, a big part. Uh, so, Noble makes it very clear in that book that like a big source of funding for the development of this technology was the U.S. Air Force because they wanted a you know, secured supply chain for their airframes. And uh, a lot of these things could only be manufactured to the requisite level of precision using these tools that were like basically didn't exist yet. And so they kind of had to like, you know, force the, you know, these forces of production to to come into being. And I think that, you know, we can, again, take a more kind of crude uh, interpersonal domination look at that and just say, like, ah, like, you know, states want, power for its own sake. And this is the state like securing its own power, which is not wrong, but it misses the larger picture of like, why, you know, why does the state in capitalism work the way it does? Like, you know, the state is fundamentally a tool for like the bourgeois class as a whole to secure its, you know, its position in like within capitalism, like to secure the, you know, the acquisition of more profit. Like, and I think, I think the thing that gets tricky Is that if you look at the actors and everything, you know, you can look at like, you have like the machinist union, they're like, you know, assuming that you can unify them in one like body, they're one actor, you have like the various industrialists, they're each their own actors, you have the US Air Force, MIT, all these different like actors with like their own agency, they all have their, like their reasons that they believe that they're doing whatever they're doing in this struggle. But You know, a lot of these things are opaque to people. Like the the structural totality of capital is like it's like it's an opaque thing. It's not really like you know if you ask some random person off the street why they have a job, it's not because like ah the abstract social domination of capital compels me to. No, it's like (laughs) (laughs) they know they need money to get a page like you know to afford rent and food and all that. And so I think that a. we have to be careful when we analyze these things, not to look at it too much in terms of like how they appear to the, I mean, we have to, it's important. It's it's extremely important to know how it appears to the actors involved. It's that's imperative. And I I commend Noble so much for, for really digging into the weeds of that. But I think he loses sight of the bigger picture of that. Like capitalism is a social totality. It does abstractly dominate everything. And it is the impetus for why these interpersonal power structures arise within the concept context of a greater Um, you know, abstract domination by like this alien force of capital.
0: I think that's beautifully put. Uh, And, and it is something that is, you know, that often escapes us, right. And, and escapes us in, in a, in a range of different ways, you know, just thinking about like my own work and the, and the things we talk about on TMK all the time as well, right. Like focusing on, these individual technologies or these individual systems is not really the point here, right? It's not that like, you know, some particular AI or, you know, Uber developing, you know, risk assessment and safety scoring through machine learning is, you know, it's like we have these examples of these things, right? The trap here is always getting caught in the example, And not doing what you're talking about as needing to do, which is to abstract it out and say, why does this exist in the first place? And and what does, what does it, what does it come about? What comes about from not this individual thing, but the larger imperatives that cause this thing to exist and the larger interest that uh, want this thing to exist, right? And not just this thing, but this whole collection of things that, that is something that is I think you do really well in the essay right now in our discussion, but it's also something that is very difficult. We want these concrete examples of the bad thing, right? Show me the bad thing and tell me why it's bad. Uh, And, but what we lose, what we risk losing in that is this, uh, you know, as Marx puts it, right, this ruthless criticism of everything existing,
1: right? Yes, exactly. This,
0: this analysis of the larger abstract and uh, modes of domination and imperatives that, you know, it's it's not, yeah, like you saying, yeah, your your boss is a dick and Be- Bezos is an asshole and, you know, <laughs> uh, Elon Musk is, you know, a dumbass or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah of course, <laughs> but, but they are also playing their part here, right? They're playing their yes. part in this system Yeah, it's not just about these interpersonal struggles. While there absolutely is that that plays into it, it's about understanding those conditions, Um, the, the larger conditions that all this fits into. You're looking at engin- the, the 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 profession of engineers and its origins in capitalism, right? Like engin- capitalism gave us engineering, it gave us engineers um, as they exist now for a reason, right? And that is also because just as you know, Marx talks about that the individual capitalist uh, uh, embodies. The abstract imperatives of capital, right? That's why yes. we can talk about capital does this, capital does that, uh, rather than saying, uh, you know, oh, capital, a capitalist is doing this or doing that. Uh, in talking about capital, that's really pinpointing that it's an ab, it's an abstract logic that that they are. You know, playing their part in in embodying, and I think in the same way, you know, you talk about as we said at the top of the show, right? Uh, engineers concretize this abstract logic of domination, um, and so in that way, you know, as you say, you know, the en- engineers are not the capitalist class. You know, sometimes they move up to the capitalist class, like yeah, Bezos definitely. and 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 so on. But is
1: Bezos an engineer?
0: Yeah, he he he. Oh, I didn't really, know that. I think he uh, was a software engineer or computer engineer, something like that, um, before, and and that's what he was doing when he started Amazon. So we see these examples, especially in the tech sector, of um, these engineers moving up to the capitalist class. But engineering, as a profession, uh, in 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 general, as you talk about, you know, its its main role is to, uh, you know, concretize to make concrete these imperatives and logics of capital.
1: Um, I, I want to go back to something you said a little earlier, like a minute ago, because yeah, you, you were talking about the importance of looking at, you know, the, the structural, the ab- the abstraction of all of this, like capital as a totality, you know, versus the, you know, like the actions of individual actors. And uh, when, when people say like the importance of that, it, it begs the question of like the importance, like, to whom, or for what reason, and, you know, like you're an academic, I'm a guy with too much time on his hands for us, just pondering it for its own sake. is like, you know, it's all, it's all part of it. It's, it. That's how it is for us. When we, when we take that question from just like a, a mere a, like a, like an intellectual one towards like a, you know, like we want communism one, you know, we, it, it becomes a question, like, we have to look at how do we, kind of what I said earlier, there's a gap between like the, the structural analysis of how everything works and then how things appear to the people involved in it and if we really want you know a society if we want communism a society that is like you know where human human well-being is the number one priority and everything is you know production and distribution are rationally planned towards that end with something that's very possible and I think very attainable you know we have to have enough people willing to implement that that you know the the gap between that abstract understanding and like their own individual, you know, subjectivity has to you don't have to completely close the gap. That's maybe maybe that's not like fully possible. You have to like narrow it enough to like make it so they can like glimpse enough of the. I just realized the listeners can't see my hands, but I'm, I'm making I'm hand waving here, I'm making diagrams. <laughs> but the you know, have to people who want revolutionaries who want communism have to make sure that like enough of a vision of communism is pot is like mm-hmm. visible and like appears immediately tangible so that people go out and like literally touch it and seize it and make it. Um, and that's tricky. That's that's not easy. <laughs> that's, you know, if there was an answer to that, we'd, we'd be in communism right now. <laughs>
0: I think this is a nice segue to something that you talk about. We can get into, into that question of, you know, the, the question of what role for engineers in capitalism, but then also what, what, you know, moving from that, what role for engineers in, in communism or what comes after capitalism, right? I, I like how you lay out how capital as both the imper- is both an imperative and impediment for engineering, right? You say, quote, herein lies the key to engineering's dysfunction under capitalism. Capital is simultaneously the driving factor behind engineering work and the primary obstruction to doing that work well. And I, I think this also speaks very much to, to that question, you know, to that question of how, How might we radicalize, uh, engineers, right? And I think that a lot of listeners to TMK have come to this on in their own ways as well of seeing this through their, their own, their own lives, their own experiences of how Capital stands in the way of doing what they want to do, of doing engineering well, of actually doing, uh, of fulfilling the, the the motivations and and goals of why people get into these prof- professions in the first place. Yeah. And so, could you lay out a little bit? Um, you know, we we've talked about how capital is this driving factor behind engineering work, right? With capital subjugates engineers to do capital better you know make more money right turn more turn some money into commodities so you can get more money out of that could you talk about how that how it stands as an impediment or the primary obstruction to doing that work well
1: absolutely so a big part of it is that uh you know With non engineers, like with with "quote unquote" unskilled labor, uh, not not a term I'm 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 fond of, but that's what it tends to get called. Unskilled unskilled labor, you see a lot of their division of labor and like rationalization of their labor, like in favor of you know the the needs of capital. And uh, engineers, that happens to us too, just not not remotely to the same extreme degree, but it does happen to us. Like we, you know, there's you know, you don't just have like the only time someone is just like engineer period end of sentence is like if they work at like a really small company where they're they're like the engineer like there's one and it's that person like otherwise you know and and most companies engineers are you know said seg- like we're we're segregated into like different um like i said earlier different like disciplines in terms of like you know scientific expertise like for example i'm a mechanical engineer I don't know much about electrical engineering. I know that circuits run on magic smoke, and if you let the smoke out, the circuit stops working. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know much about electrical engineering. Pretty much everything I design interfaces with electronics at some point or another, but I I don't have the training to know a lot about electrical engineering. I mean, I'm I'm selling myself a little short. Like, I am you know, I know, I know like the basics. I know like, you know, I I know some stuff I have to as part of my job,
0: but there's these strong divisions of labor that you're getting at. Yes,
1: there's, there's a exact, that's what I'm getting at here. Thank you for not letting me ramble. There's a strong division of labor. (laughs) There's a strong division of labor between engineers and it's, it's between scientific like, you know, disciplines as well as like departmental roles. So, But between me and an electrical engineer, there's like, you know, there's like a gulf of understanding that we like have to bridge and it it can be tricky. But also between like there's in, you know, like I'm in like, let's say I'm in the the design department, the R&D department. And then like I have to talk to a process engineer or a manufacturing engineer in the manufacturing department. They could have also majored in mechanical engineering. We may have the same level of you know, like baseline understanding of like physical phenomena, but like, because we have different departmental roles, there's also a gulf of understanding between the two of us. Like I have to make sure that whatever I'm designing is most amenable to their, you know, their processes and they have to have a good understanding of like what the heck it is I even designed to make sure that what's coming out of their end is like, does what I wanted to do. Cause I came up with it in an abstract sense, but then they have to like bring it to fruition in a concrete sense, which is I think the average person who's not an engineer like woefully underestimates how freaking difficult it is to not only get a product to like to design a product that works but to make like millions of them that all work identically to each other and then like and even I think a lot of engineers don't understand how freaking hard that is like that is that is a colossal undertaking but yeah this division of labor is is makes it very hard for engineers because we we have to spend all our time focusing on like one very narrow set of like tasks or subject matter but in order to you know do anything with that, we have to have a really good understanding of what goes on all around it. And uh, the the way that companies are structured makes it very, very, very hard to like do that. A lot of times, some companies are better about it than others. Um, sometimes smaller companies, like by necessity, don't have like as strict of a division of labor just because they have fewer you know personnel. Um, but smaller companies have plenty of their own problems that make life shitty for engineers. And then huge companies may have everything like extremely segregated. Um, but like they get paid better or something, I don't know. And so it's, it makes it, it makes it, that's a kind of the core impediment, I would say to, um, engineers doing their job well. Um, there's also the fact that like, because, you know, engineers are, we're not solving like a technical problem that we have like a full, that we have like full control over. I mean, engineering is like a tool of management. Um, and I mean, really the, the core of any company is like technically the finance department, like, you know. You know, because everything that happens between M and M prime is like of zero consequence to the finance department. They just want money in and then like our bigger money or they want money out and bigger money in. And somewhere in between money out and money in is like a bunch of engineering stuff they don't care about. And so we don't have, I guess we control the process by which things happen, but we don't control what like the necessarily the initial goal is or whatever like that, because it's determined by, by the needs of capital. And so like, you know, if you're designing like a medical device, you don't necessarily design like the most effective medical device that, you know, is, uh, Going to be the helpful to the most people. Like you, you don't do it on this like rational calculus of how to help the most amount of people with the smallest amount of resources, which is what you would want to do under communism. But under capitalism, it's how do I make a medical device that's like good enough to get purchased by enough people to get us the most amount of money? And uh, you know, despite the despite what every you know capitalist grifter will tell you, like just because something is purchased a lot doesn't mean it's like effective or good or like you know good for society like there's or like even of good quality like there's there's this weird kind of like pairing of financial success with like every other kind of success and they are just like not true i mean like you guys have talked about on the show plenty yeah exactly i was just about to say yeah so like get tesla uber all these other like you know companies that are touting themselves as like the next big thing and like they just i mean not only not only do they just have a shitty surface they also just like you know don't even make money <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is really getting out of here right is that you know as you say in the piece engineers cannot shape the world through the power of good ideas and clever engineering we shape the world according to the needs of capital right and even you say even engineers working at nonprofits or independently in their garages cannot operate without money and even then must operate in a world shaped around capitalism so you know what you're talking about here is that yeah, obviously within a large company, as you say, engineers are just tools of management, right? Like you don't get to go in there and do whatever you want and create this medical device or create this other technology that you know benefits the most people or is you know, all, you know, primarily, Socially beneficial production, right? I mean, I'll I'll harken back to uh, uh, our episodes ages ago on on the Lucas Plan um, and on this concept of socially beneficial production, and you see what happens when. Uh, engineers like at the Lucas Aerospace, uh, manufacturing company in the, in the seventies in the UK, you know, tried to rise up and, and re-engineer the factory, right? To make socially beneficial products. Uh, and, and capital balked at that, right? They said, you know, they, you know, they, they come up with a plan, right? And we'll make money, right? It will be profitable. Here's, here's our business plan. Here's blueprints for all the different, uh, things that we want to make and capital you know said hold on here you you need to yeah. you need to check yourself and get back in. you know get back in your role
2: i'll harken back to what i was talking about earlier about people you know losing faith and working in the medical field i can't for certainly verify that this is the case but this is like secondhand but there was a there was a viral video that was like a couple years ago and there was a child with a CP, uh CP cerebral palsy on a skateboard with like a rig that someone made out of PVC pipe and like casters and like gate belts and bungees basically to allow this child to be able to like skate around a skate park. And it was created with the help of uh, ATPs, which are assisted technology professionals. It's basically a job that I, I did for a few years where I built custom wheelchairs and, and custom uh, mobility aids and things like that company that makes this equipment saw that uh created something that was out of you know welded steel uh patented it and then basically send people Ds if they saw other people building copycats of it and then in turn sell it for a substantial profit in a lot of cases insurances won't pay for it because you know it's a p it's a piece of equipment that was like a i think it was like seven thousand dollars is what they wanted for it and then something that was built with like you know a hundred dollars worth of equipment and supplies from your local Home Depot, and a couple hours in a garage. When I was a kid, I made
1: everything out of PVC pipe. That was like, I mean, you know, I was a kid. I I got like what like ten bucks a week for allowance. Like you know, I couldn't afford like good materials. So Jeremy's example
0: there is great. Is showing that like you know, in 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 you know, people can create wonderful things amazing things and then a company steps in and is like all right we're we're gonna patent this we're gonna send you cease and desist if you try to do it without doing it the way that we know uh that we say you need to do it and making the money that we say you need to make out of it and all that i think this really gets to your point here nick as well that you know this is a this is a case study that's an example of you know capital standing in the way of doing some kind of socially beneficial production or socially beneficial engineering because ultimately you gotta make money. And we can even see this in startups, right? Like this is supposed to be, you know, this is the ideology of the startup, right? The 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 idea is that, oh well, you know, I have these great ideas, uh, and and so I'll I'll create my own company and we'll 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 create these products and that and they will make the world a better place, and and we'll do that socially beneficial production. And you know, it's it's there's no company standing in my way, right? There's no finance department telling me that, uh, sorry, this doesn't have a high enough return on investment. But the reality of the situation is, is that the finance department is replaced by venture capitalists, right? Like they're the ones telling you what the ROI needs to be on it. They're the ones telling you about how it needs to scale, how it needs to grow, what it needs to look like, and it's all it always comes back to that idea that, as you say, right? Like capital is this obstruction. It's an imperative, and even good engineering um, outside of you know these corporate conditions. Uh, requires money or at the very least it exists in a world that is shaped by money. Money, money. I I like this because I think this is something that we need to, you know, really drive home more so in terms of showing your, your colleagues in the engineering world, right? That's like, this is what's standing in the way of you actually doing what you thought you were getting into this profession to do right this is you cannot do good engineering under capitalism you can only do engineering for capitalism
1: yeah you were completely right but i wanted to go on a quick aside so my first job out of college was at a startup and it it was it it was pretty much as you described some you know the guy who founded it was an engineer and he had some interesting ideas but uh, you know a lot of them about how to like you know revolutionize a certain sector of manufacturing and uh, you know there was no finance department in the way to tell him that his ideas were going to be not very profitable basically the company i had gotten there when they existed for 5 years already at that point and they still weren't turning a profit and uh, but then it wasn't just because like the ideas were like you know maybe not the most suited to the market but They also didn't believe in prototyping. It was really weird. So like, they would ask me to design something, and then they'd be like, bummed it like didn't work the first time. And it's like, well, this is a complex system. You can't just have me not prototype it. And all their machines that they they would buy like eight parts to make like eight machines, and then like none of them would work. They'd have the exact same problems because they didn't prototype. It was if you, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen the show Silicon Valley. It was basically like that, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just just pure ego and idiocy all around. And then they laid me off before my stock options vested. So you know, uh, <laughs> of course, of course, <laughs> yeah, naturally. But um, but yeah, I, I want to go to what you're saying though about like yeah, fuck them. Indeed, agreed. But <laughs> I'm I'm definitely better off now. Um, I think they're still barely not turning a profit. As far as like you know, getting engineers on board with like some kind of like socialist or communist program. Um, I think I think it's really important that. Like one, like, you know, it's, it's made clear and identified to engineers, which I think a lot of them like realize it's just like an imminent part of their like lived experience that like, yeah, capital is like obstructing your ability to like, not just live a happy life as a worker, but also to like do meaningful, impactful work with the, you know, the vast amount of technical knowledge you have. But like, I think it's really easy for, it's, it, it is going to, the, it's going to be easy for engineers to fall into kind of like this weird pit, uh, like ideologically where you have, you know, Like they know that capitalism blows, but then there's enough like ambient Silicon Valley bullshit floating around where they think like, oh yeah, like if we, you know, maybe we can turn a profit like by doing this, doing things this way, and still do something that's like beneficial to humanity. And like I, I I haven't heard of the Lucas Plan. I'm actually gonna go hit up Wikipedia when we hang up here, (laughs) but um, so I don't know the details of like that particular thing. I mean, even if you like, let's say you make some some really cool device that's gonna just like you know just makes everyone's life awesome and you can you know make a profit on it cuz it's so cool sure yeah you, you did that but then like how is this how is this thing made like you know everything today like supply chains are all a global like affair Uh, You know, manufacturing takes place pretty much all over the globe. Like there's, everything's very like intertwined and uh, who's building this thing? Like how much are they getting paid? Like what work conditions are they working in? Like if they're not in the U S there's probably a good reason. Like, you know, why, why they're the ones working on it instead of, instead of a worker here, you know, like what lack of labor protections exist where those people live. And like, no matter how, like I mean, I know it's like a, a tired saying, but like you know, like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. There's also no ethical like production under capitalism. Every piece of plastic, like you know, derived from some petroleum that you know is gonna fuck up the planet. Like you know, every every microchip was you know assembled by some like poor sap in and some some country that you know pays them like two bucks an hour to assemble this thing. And like there's there's just you can't get around it. Like there's there's zero way to like do engineering within capitalism in like a totally like humane way. I think that it's a love for a lot of engineers who are kind of insulated from all like engineers that work in certain like industries or certain areas where that's kind of opaque to them. It'd be really easy to fall into that kind of trap of thinking like, Oh, like we can do this ethically, but you know, you can't. <laughs> and so, and, and that's why like, it's not just like capitalism doesn't need to be reformed and needs to be like completely overthrown. And like from the, from the, the you know the from the like the, all the machinery the means of production of capitalism is like what creates the basis for communism like that's what so makes communism possible but you have to use it towards communist ends not like capitalist ends that are somehow nicer nice
0: I think this is a beautiful segue to something that we can end the episode with, which is your discussion of engineers and communism. And I want to read um, a, a bit because you you just, I think you lay it out really clearly near the end of your essay and the, the kind of last ses- section of your essay. So I'm just going to read a bit from that. Um, you say... Within the subjectivity of one who is both an agent and object of capital, there exists plenty of room for sympathy to communism. For the engineers who desire to apply their technical expertise for the legitimate betterment of the human species, their only recourse is the decoupling of capital and engineering, which is to say their only recourse is the establishment of communism." The relationship between engineers and communism can be analyzed in terms of two distinct but related categories the role of engineers in the revolutionary destruction of capitalism, and their role once communism is established. And then you go on to say, What can be said with near certainty is that a revolution that does not have substantial participation from engineers is doomed to fail at implementing communism. The material basis for communism is not proletarian rage or mass-scale dispossession. It is centuries of labor now embodied in the form of fixed capital, machinery, buildings, global productive infrastructure, and countless commodities. There is a cruel irony to the fact that communism has been made possible by the brutal subjugation of the majority of the planet's population into wage labor, but it is indeed mass manufacturing and global distributive capacity that makes a planned social system controllable by the collective human desire for well-being even possible. This was something that really leapt out to me as I was reading your essay and rereading your essay. Is this part that I just let read out at the very, you know, near the end after you lay out this really clear, lucid analysis of in, of of this kind of coupling of engineering and capitalism, and then you know you you lay out I think a very provocative statement here, right? That any revolution, any ca- any revolution overthrowing capitalism is doomed to fail at implementing communism or anything after capitalism without participation from the engineers. Could you talk us through? that argument, that thought process there. I don't it's one that I don't disagree with at all, but it is also one that I think really is interesting in terms of um, you know, a lot of the 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 kind of you know, especially the political economy of technology and the kind of political economic critique of engineering is very much one that that follows your own analysis of being like, hey, like, you know, Engineers are, as you put it, the you know tools of management. They concretize the logic of capital, and I think the the impetus there is to be like, all right, well, we got to throw the bat, we got to throw out the bathwater and the baby and everything in there. You know, like how, how can we even hope to? Uh, reform or or rehabilitate a profession that has you know from its very origins and all and and all of its implementation been this you know this 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 tool of domination and subjugation this tool of extraction and exploitation of sur- of labor and surplus value. But obviously that's not what you think is the case, right? It's not about you, you're like, oh, okay, you know, all, all the engineers, I'm sorry. Uh, can you please line up against this wall over here? <laughs> um, thank you for your service, but you know, uh, we don't have need for you anymore. But I think you have a vision of not only engineers as necessary, but the, the, the person as engineer, the, per, the, position of engineering as something that looks and operates radically different. Um, it's not something that you are saying needs to be abolished, but rather abolished completely, but rather abolished in its current form. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And so that's, um, I'm actually, I'm working on another essay right now that is still a bit rough, but that, that is on this exact topic. Um, so I'll I can let you guys know when that's, when that's out. But I think so. This, this kind of the key to communism is um, is is dead labor. Ultimately, we have, you know, like I said, like there's centuries of, of dead labor have been crystallized into all means of production, specifically like machines. Like machines are how we make stuff. Like there's, you know, we live in a world of stuff. It's it's everywhere. It's it's how it's how we've you know attained in you know parts of the world a very high level of comfort and you know like just nice lifestyle you know prior to this like you know prior to the to the fusion of science and production humans were a lot more subject to just the the whims of outside forces in ter- like you know much more subject to the forces of like disease natural disaster you know all, all kinds of things that just make life kind of shitty Capitalism has definitely like created the potential for a higher standard of living that some people on the planet maybe get to have a bit of, but it's not something that everyone gets to have, and it's definitely not like distributed in any kind of like remotely equitable way. Um, but the way that you make the things like, and it's like it's physical objects I'm talking about here that you know that make life nicer to live come from machinery. It's it's like I mean I know that that's a very engineer thing to think, but it's it's I stand by it, and so the way that, you know, all this machinery, like, as I've said, like it's created a really horrible situation for the world proletariat historically and in the present. Um, and so it's, it's like the tool by which, you know, the the proletariat is dominated, but it's also the tool by which that we can make a more equitable future where, you know, we can make things that we know will make lives better, and distribute them in such a way that will make lives better. And that, you know, that of course requires input from everyone. Like I I definitely would not subscribe to this kind of like elitist ideal of like engineers just running society, like some big Excel sheet. Like I definitely don't think that's the case. You, it's not necessarily engineers that are, I mean, there's, what makes engineers special and like a critical part of like establishing communism in my opinion is less about like us as people and more about our relationship to these machines that, Are themselves like the engine of communism. And it's because we have the expertise to, like, you know, to on how they work and how to deploy them. Now, plenty of, you know, non engineering laborers, like quote unquote unskilled laborers, have quite a bit of skill and expertise on these machines as well. It's not just us. The thing is, we're constantly stripping it from them, as I, you know, try to articulate in this essay. So, We need this expertise, whether it's with the unskilled labor, quote unquote, or the engineer and that expertise paired with the actual physical machine itself to, you know, deploying those towards creation of a society where, you know, we can produce enough goods for everyone to like live a nice, happy, comfy life. And it's definitely possible with far less labor time than now. I think a lot of people would think that that sounds like a bit of a pipe dream. But if you look at the huge amount of just unnecessary crap that we manufacture, it's like it becomes very obvious immediately that we just, we can get away with manufacturing a whole lot less. Like if you, if you, if you stop manufacturing goods designed to fail very quickly, like, and instead design things to be far more durable, you can, you cut out a lot of manufacturing that needs to be done there. Um, You can cut out a lot of, uh, you know, pollution from manufacturing of plastics and all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, if you get like all the social antagonisms that, you know, quote unquote require policing and like huge militaries and all that, um, you know, by require, I mean, of course the b- required for the bourgeois class to maintain their role, not necessarily require like for any other reason, but like, you know, you get rid of like arms manufacturing and get rid of like, you know, like police surveillance technology, all this other like shit that we just don't need and is not conducive to a healthy society. You get rid of all this crap that we don't need that frees up a colossal amount of productive capacity, like potential labor time from people who no longer have to work in those industries. Um, uh, and you know, like there, there's more, there's more time. Like, you know, you, you eliminate all the industries that like are just tied to keeping capitalism running, like, you know, accounting departments in companies or like, you know, financial analysts or like cashiers, just there's so many jobs that are, are not critical to necessarily creating anything useful, but like are just part of keeping capital circulating. You know, you get rid of all, all of that shit. Like you would now have like a gajillion people who are, You know with a significantly reduced amount of stuff that need that that, like absolutely needs doing the amount of labor just to keep society like from you know to keep people from like dying is now extreme minimal like you can have every person would need to work work like maybe like a couple hours a week if that and then you have all this extra time that people can go make all the other stuff that makes life actually worth living like you know not just like you know enough food and water to like and shelter to get people to live but like all like i was saying all the actually nice shit that people want and like you know and if it's the kind of thing where like you know people will say like but what about my like you know massive television like who's going to manufacture those maybe nobody like maybe maybe those maybe manufacturing TVs is so horrible the benefit of having one is just not worth making them. Now, granted, I'm sure there's people who love TVs so much they're willing to go and like manufacture them. Fine, <laughs> manufacture <laughs> your TVs. Have at it. Have a have a great time. Like you know, uh, you know, within the broader social plan that everyone has input on for like resource allocation, there's enough resources for you to make TVs and get them to people. By all means, have at it you know that that, that's kind of like what i mean there it's it's from a technical standpoint that's what makes communism possible it's like the fact that we have enough manufacturing capacity to make a shitload of stuff and that's you know that's something we really like we would need to lean on now a a concept i've been playing with in my head that i haven't like worked out too much yet is what the machines like the productive machinery of communism would look like compared to capitalism within capitalism a lot of machines are single-use machines they like They're big hulking pieces of metal that they literally do one thing. They're only physically capable of making one specific component. Like you can't really do anything else with them. Like that's literally all they can do. That only makes sense because we have like a world of mass manufacturing where like inverting that much or investing that much capital into um, that machine that only does literally one thing only makes sense if you're going to produce like a gajillion parts and like send them everywhere. So under communism, you would probably still have some machines like that. You probably have a lot of machines like that. because like some things are probably going to be needed everywhere. Like, but you know, obviously we can't predict the future, you know, like screws, like you don't need to like, not every locality needs to like reinvent the screw. Like Mm -hmm. I'm sure we, I'm sure we're all okay using the same screws. Like, I don't think it's going to be too much of like a authoritarian imposition from the central, central planning agency to, make everyone subscribe to the like the metric screw system that currently exists maybe it will maybe screws will be like an obsolete capitalist like triviality that people don't want anymore i don't know but like so we could probably keep a lot of fixed machinery that does like useful stuff like screws or like ball bearings or something but you know otherwise i would imagine we're going to see the proliferation of a lot more what i would call like flexible machinery that can Mm -hmm. be that's not like efficient to use in capitalism but like stuff like you know, like a lot more like mills and lathes and, you know, additive manufacturing, like 3d printers and stuff like that, that there's may not be the most efficient use of time, but like, it's, you know, you can use the, it's more fun to use them. Um, you don't have to put them like to produce things as fast as freaking possible. You can, you can take your time. And then once they're done, you can make something completely different with them. Hmm. Um, and I, I, a quick note on 3d printers. I, I think that there's a lot of hype around them right now that they're going to be like the next big thing. I think, that kind of died because obviously they didn't. I mean, I have one right behind me. You can see on the on the webcam. Anyone who tries to tell you about a really cool thing they're doing with three D printers, like, just be skeptical of it. It's probably <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> like, like, I love three D printers. I've I've worked in the three D printing industry. I I literally have one in my you know my room right behind me. But they're overrated as hell.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're laying out here is really interesting uh, as well. You know what, what you're getting at is that this idea of uh, of a kind of a, an engineering that. Has flexibility, uh, you know, not 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 an engineering that is about, you know, uh, yeah, a, a kind of mass production and and a, a foisting on people, right? Saying we're producing this thing because we can make money out of it, or we're producing this thing and then convincing you that you want it. Yes, exactly. That you need yeah, it.
1: Go, we right? will do away with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's about it's about producing something because it's socially beneficial for uh, for some reason and 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 that that can be flexible. I mean again thinking about the Lucas plan, you know, th- this was ages ago and TMK's run now. This was episode 38. We just uh Jeremy just pulled pulled it out for us. Um but you know, episode 38 and then episode 39 we did two part uh episode on the Lucas plan, but one of the things that was really striking about their, you know, these engineers, you know, cre- trying to create a new blueprint for how to do socially beneficial production was that it, it was about taking an aerospace manufacturing plant that was largely a big military contractor. So you can think about like, you know, Raytheon or Boeing um, and yep, being yeah. like, here's how we could use the factory to produce medical devices, produce transportation, produce x produce y produce c right like we can use the facilities and capacities and knowledge we already have here to do more than just produce you know this one part of uh of an uh, of a
1: military aircraft right we can that produce- sounds so up my alley i need I, i'm gonna i'm gonna go listen to that after this <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i
0: mean it, it, it's really really interesting and, and kind of revolutionary to think Uh, a factory doesn't have to be one big satanic mill that creates one small thing. A factory can be a place of capacity and of putting knowledge to use for whatever the purposes or goals or needs are at that time. And I think that really resonates with what you're talking about in terms of what engineering uh, for and under uh, communism would look like here. And, And you really lay out as well, this vision of of breaking these divisions of labor that we've been talking about um, about you know making not only within engineering, right, of these different departments and disciplines within engineering that, again, are about dividing labor and about making it focus on doing one specific thing within the larger, um, you know, manufacturing process, but about breaking that out as well socially where you don't have to have some, you know, you, you don't have to be part of the engineering class to do engineering, to do things, right? You say the last line of your piece is those who do will have the freedom to think and those who think will be empowered to do. This will improve the lives of engineers as much as everyone else. I think that is a, a really great vision of not only like how do we engineer communism, but what is the role and position of engineers within communism is that we all become engineers in this way, right? It makes me think of like, you know, Marx's idea of of what you know a perfect day in in the you know in a in a communist world would look like right where it's like you can hunt in the morning fish in the afternoon mm-hmm. rear cattle in the evening and criticize after dinner right you can replace that with you know you can engineer in the morning you can do carpentry <laughs> in the afternoon right you whatever whatever right the <laughs> idea is that we all have the knowledge and resources and are empowered to do what we think is the thing we want to do that day,
1: right? Yeah. I think it's very fitting that Mark for Marx, one of the one of the fundamental joys in life is criticizing people. <laughs> yeah. That's you know. a very Marx thing to think <laughs> Little
2: gossipy bitch. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I I shuddered. I'm so glad he wasn't around when like Twitter was a thing. Uh, like I'm, I'm glad he's not here for that. Well, but,
2: um, we, uh, yeah, we, he would be a grade a shit poster. Oh, oh we he would have
0: never gotten volume one of capital. <laughs> yeah. No, the,
1: the world would be worse off for it. Volume one is one of my, one of my favorite books. Uh, I do want to, um, mention that. So, cause you were talking about, you know, this, this Lucas plant, it reminded me, um, so angry workers of the world, they put out this essay a couple years ago called insurrection and in production. I don't know if you read it. They so they're, they're a UK based uh, grouplet, and they have they basically did like a little analysis, a little hypothetical like thought exercise. Like, let's say revolution breaks out here in uh, the United Kingdom, you know, how does, how does that look from a productive standpoint? Like, and they, you know, this is a couple years ago, so maybe some the stats are a little outdated, especially after COVID, but they take a look at like, you know, how many factories of, of like this industry and that industry there are where they're located, what they're nearby, who lives around them. Like, you know, the people who work there, where do they live? And, uh, you know, what, what production can be just shut down and then like, you know, like the machines scrapped or whatever, like what things will need more people working them. It was a very interesting kind of thought exercise. And like, it's, I mean, it's, you know, every, every minute that passes from when they wrote it, it becomes one minute less useful just cause like things change over, over time. But like, the way that they went about it, I thought, was like very smart, and I think that you know, if we do end up on the cusp of like some kind of revolutionary situation, that wouldn't be a bad way to look at the the present situation then, um, and you know how to how to kind of go about planning what to do with like the stuff everywhere.
0: I mean, I think this is a great point to wrap up on. And it also reminds me, I mean, both the the, the style that you write in and the things you're writing about uh, resonated so much with past guests and friend of the show, Aaron Beninoff's work um, on this as yeah. well. In addition to his book, uh, which we, you know, uh, Ed interviewed uh, and discussed, Ed and Jeremy discussed uh, Aaron's book with him um, ages ago on the podcast. But you know, we talked about his essay um, from last December in Logic called "How to Make a Pencil," and he lays out a lot of uh, you know a lot of very complementary analysis to what you're what you're talking about. What, uh, what what really speaks to me, I think, about your essay about Aaron's work and about this th- is that it really points to a kind of burgeoning interest in a kind of scientific socialism, right? A socialism or a communism that takes seriously that question of how do we make this? What does production actually look like um, within this system? What does life look like within this system? You know, Marx was reticent to, as he said, right, give uh, recipes for the, the, the chefs of the future. But at the same time, we do need Some kind of engineering blueprints to help guide us, right? To help make us concretize these abstract logics and desires to make them into things that, as you put it, Nick, that we can kind of reach out and touch where we can actually see or at least have a better idea of what this would look like, how it would work right i think that's a yeah. really important question here of how would this work and it's a hard question it is the hardest question and it, it, which is a reason why even people like marx were so reticent to ever touch it right um yeah uh, but it is a question that we have to begin to have answers to because it's also not the case I mean, all, all listeners of TMK will know that, you know, the laissez-faire is a myth, right? Capitalism is engineered. Capitalism is a very engineered process. Um, what makes us think that what comes after it uh, won't also be an engineered process, but engineered by different people for different purposes? That's really the question here. Um, and I think it's a question that your essay uh, really gets at in an interesting and important way, I think with that, I think we are we are well at time. Um, but this has been a really fantastic discussion. There's just so much more to to talk about on all this. I know we're all very keen uh, and interested to hear. Uh, and read what you're what your work what you're working on next and talk with you more about it in the future so Nick I want to thank you so much for coming on TMK am am I am I not mistaken that this is your first time on a podcast as well
1: this is it's it's funny that uh, that essay in the rail that was my first time publishing like a serious essay anywhere and yeah and this is also my first time getting interviewed on a podcast so I'm I'm happy that this this was the first one and it went this well
0: well I'm 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 I speak for everybody in saying uh, I hope it will not be the last time um, that you publish such a a, a great, you know, uh, critical essay and come on TMK to speak about it. So thank you again, Nick. Uh, people, uh, there will be a link to your essay in the episode description. Um, is there anywhere else that you would like, anything else you'd like to plug or
1: anywhere where people can find you or your work? Um I'm hoping to have that essay I mentioned done soon, and just put it up on the. Uh, I'm I'm trying to get a blog going, so if that's done before this episode airs, I'll I'll give you guys the link, and you guys can can shove it there.
0: Awesome, and if not, then give us a link when it is done, and we will uh, we will read it and post it and promote it. Um, absolutely. So for sure. Thank you again, Nick, and I want to I want to um, thank all of our listeners for listening. Uh, and you can find us at Patreon. Uh, patreon.com slash this machine kills for more premium episodes every single week. Deeper dives into topics, uh, lighter episodes of riffing and discussing shit. Um, and also our ongoing book club series on Wendy H.K. Chan's book Control and Freedom, Power and Paranoia in the Age of Fiber Optics is still ongoing and just getting better with every episode. So. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening. Thank you again, Nick. And until then, later.
2: later.